This is the Monday, May 7, 2018 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes for a brand new episode every other Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, our time machine travels back to the decades leading up to and through the American Civil War, when supporters of rival Cherokee chiefs, John Ross and the Ridge, engaged in a blood feud that led to war, the infamous Trail of Tears, and the devastation of a once proud nation encompassing what is today several modern American states. Our guide on this journey is veteran journalist and author John Sedgwick, who brings us Blood Moon, an American epic of war and splendor in the Cherokee Nation. John Sedgwick is the best-selling author of 13 books, including War of Two, his acclaimed account of the Alexander Hamilton Aaron Bird duel. He's also written two novels and the family memoir, In My Blood. In addition to all those books, you've seen his work in GQ, Newsweek, Vanity Fair, and The Atlantic. You can find him online at johnsedgwick.biz. Okay, now that we've landed in the Cherokee Nation, let's join John Sedgwick under that blood moon. I'm joined on the line by John Sedgwick, author of Blood Moon, an American epic of war and splendor in the Cherokee Nation. Thank you so much for making time to chat with the History Author Show. Oh, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for asking me. Well, thank you for writing this book because I really did enjoy it. One of my highest compliments for a book is that it refuses any attempt at skimming. You really get invested in reading it. You want to know the full story, in this case, the full story of the disintegration and destruction of the Cherokee Nation. I wanted to start by discussing the challenges of writing Blood Moon for a 21st century audience. I enjoyed the book in part because you avoid racist cliches on the one end, as well as the condescending noble savage mythology on the other. That's the kind of book that I look for when we're talking about native peoples. You went about this in a historian's way, but you also had to go about it in a human way. You had to write a fair piece of history where the Cherokee are shown as human beings with the full range of emotions and lives. They're not these magical people. They're human beings. They have all of our same faults and virtues to one degree or another. How did you do that and avoid either of those cartoonish extremes? Well, what an excellent question. Uh, um, I'm glad to think that I have. Uh, you know, I have to say that I, I go about history from an unusual angle because for many years I was a magazine journalist for GQ and other places. And so that I tend to view history as almost the journalism of another time. And I come at it as if Indeed, these are real people whom I actually could know, but they're available to me only in the way that they're available to historians, which is through documents and newspaper articles and occasional photographs and whatever images you can pick up and contemporary accounts and then uh, histories of the period. And so you kind of work your, work your way back. You kind of work your way 
to them in ways that you don't have to in journalism. In journalism, you call somebody up and you go to see him. But in history, you only get to him through these sort of mediated ways. And what I found was a couple of things. One is that it was immensely helpful to go there, to see the Smoky Mountains, to go to Oklahoma and discover, as I did, that Oklahoma and eastern Oklahoma is not the dust bowl that you imagine, but it in fact is rather verdant. And it reminded me actually of Derbyshire in England. It had an English village quality. Who would have thought? And once you get to those places, then it's much easier to imagine the people living on them. And so that for me, it was in a sense that by putting myself in those places, I could imagine them there. But mind you, it was still an act of the imagination. I'll tell you one thing that was also really helpful. As you know, the book is not about one individual, but about two primarily. There is this man called The Ridge for he who walks on mountaintops. And another man named John Ross, who was the longtime principal chief, which is the equivalent of the, of the president of the Cherokee tribe, or the Cherokee nation, I should say. Well, one of the ways the characters come alive is in opposition, that you get to see them through the eyes of the other. And that gives you a sense of a sort of a binocular view. It's not just you looking at them, but it's other people looking at them. And what did these other people see? And that, I think, is as close to the truth of it as you're going to get. You mentioned that you get the occasional photograph, and I wanted to ask you about that because in my advanced copy, anyway, I didn't have a credit for the photo. And there's this man on the cover of Blood Moon in a soldier's uniform during the Civil War. He has his pistol there with him and also, I guess, his scabbard. Yeah. Who is he or how did he become the face of your book? That's an excellent question. That was an image that I am either proud or ashamed to say came off of this uh, newfangled instrument called the internet. And it's amazing what you, I don't know if you ever deal with that, but it, you, it's amazing what you can find on it. And what I found on it was this image of an Indian, and pardon me for using the word Indian, but it's the word that they used at the time, an Indian who clearly fought in the Civil War on the Union side. He is likely a Cherokee, but he may not have been a Cherokee. That any of the so-called five um, civilized tribes um, of southeastern the United States, all they all fought in the war to some extent, but the Cherokee most of all. And he's assumed to be a Cherokee, but it, it can't be definitively decided. He certainly looks like one. He is wearing what the Cherokee wore when they went into battle. And so he stands sort of as the iconic figure for the book. I might add that one of the things that I love about that image is the sort of wary neutrality of the man's face, plus the fact that he's got his six gun right there across his chest, and that he and he's also attired. Most of them were not, but attired in the full Union dress. So he looks like any other Union soldier. But of course, when you see that copper skin of his, you see the look in his eye, you see the kind of foreignness of this. You can tell that this is strange to us to see him, but it's also strange to be him. That's the impression that you get. And I noticed too, he also has his finger on the trigger, which usually if you're just taking a picture, basic safety, you'd have it off, but he's, he's also ready. He's ready to go. There's so many things you can really linger over that photo. Well, thank you for that. It, it was kind of, a, you know, when you put together a cover, it, it's quite an art because you need to balance various things, the title, my name, the image, the text, the typeface, all of that. This is an unusual cover because people see it will, will know immediately that it's, it's ripped. It looks like it's ripped. Uh, the, the blood moon part on the left looks like it's been ripped to show the photograph on the right. And so there's a kind of way that this kind of pops out at you in an unexpected fashion. And that was really the, I have to say that that was the beginning of the book for me. It was to discover, uh, to my enormous surprise, that Indians fought in the Civil War, that 30,000 of them did, and that of all the Indians that fought, and there were about maybe 18 to 20 tribes altogether, only one tribe came in on both sides of the war, and that was the Cherokee. Well, why? I mean, anybody would want to know 
why. And the answer had to do with two factions that came in on either side of the war largely to oppose each other and to have at each other once more. And that that disagreement stemmed from this blood feud that was behind the Trail of Tears, this famous uh, forced migration of the Cherokee from their eastern lands to the west, way back in 1838 and 9, almost three decades before. And you think, boy, the way that history unfolds, and it's so interesting to track it back, to find some oddity like that, and then track it back to its source and realize that there's a remarkable revelation at the far end. And even you just saying that he's likely, it reminds us that there are so many competing nations, so many competing factions and people that when we have Europeans arrive and they just lump them all in as under this name of India, which is, of course, completely on the other side of the world, unbeknownst yeah. to them, it's very enjoyable for me to read a book where you're reminded that these were not all this one interchangeable Indian person for another, not person of a nation, for instance, with Greek people. I'll just speak for my own ethnic group. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of Greek people who don't mm -hmm. like the term. I feel it's imposed on them by someone else, which is surprising maybe because the Greek people often brag about it in their shirts and everything, but it's not really accurate. People identify more with other parts. For instance, my ancestors, well, my family name is one from Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. And when those people were expelled and sent to Greece, they were considered outsiders. They weren't considered truly part of the Greek nation. And I'm sure you look at India the same way. You can look at the Chinese multiple language. At the time, people just looked at you and assumed that you were part of that group. We all do that. Maybe even when we say Europeans, we know that very well because we're here in North America. But this was the thing with the native people, how much variety there was. And you realize that because they're human beings. And this is a clash of cultures, not a clash of a different species of people, even though this is how they were condescendingly looked upon. Same thing with Africa. There's not one African identity for people. And this is the center conflict here of your book with John Ross and the Ridge. Absolutely. It's that they have differing opinions. They don't look at each other. Just as in the War of 1812, which you cover here in Blood Moon, they side, the Cherokee side with Andrew Jackson. These men fight with him and against the Red Sticks. And so this is part of it. It's a really an epic story, a sweeping story. And it's a very American story, even though it's about Indians. It's about identity. It's about cultural identity. And that is, of course, the central question that Americans are facing today over issues of immigration. Who is an American? Who is not an American? Could anyone here in the United States possibly not be regarded as an American? I don't think so. But that's, that is what some people think. But they have to look back to the history of, of the Cherokee in, in particular, of any uh, um, indigenous tribe or of immigrant people. You know, it's a melting pot here, just as, uh, just as everyone says. And what is so striking about the Cherokee story is that these were people who had been in this country for at, somewhere around 20,000 years. And so they were long established when the white settlers appeared. But the, the whites, of course, came and created this very powerful country of the United States that burgeoned and had populations far in excess of what the people of the Cherokee tribe. And so that the, the question that the Cherokee faced, and this is the central dilemma of the book, is how can they maintain their identity as Cherokee within the larger context of the American nation? That what were they willing to give up? What were, did they have to give up? And what were they going to die to protect? And, you know, these are questions that we all have wherever we're from. How we identify ourselves within the great American nation is, you know, sort of a, a lifelong endeavor. I mean, who are we? Who are we as individuals? Who are we collectively? Who are we as families? These are the questions that the Cherokee faced. And it's one that's addressed remarkably by the two central figures of this book, because they represent both sides of the issue in ways that you wouldn't expect. Because here we have, on the one hand, this man, John Ross, who, as I say, was the longtime principal chief, 40 years the principal chief of the Cherokee nation. He looked 
entirely Scottish. He was seven eighths Scottish. He was about five foot six. This is the Cherokee men on average at the time were roughly six feet tall. The Ridge, his primary opponent and antagonist, was indeed a pretty much a full blood Cherokee warrior. Great strapping character, six foot two, copper skinned, looked as classically Cherokee as, as anybody could. John Ross spoke no Cherokee, and yet he was the one to represent the Cherokee people. On the other hand, the Ridge was the one who identified very much with the affluent portion of the the mixed bloods who aspired to a sort of capitalistic dream of greater prosperity and identified with some of the rising industrial class of the greater United States. Well, which one was it? On the one hand, Ross represented this group called the Full Bloods, who were the traditional Cherokee. Paradoxically, the Ridge was representing the mixed bloods who had a lot of white blood, usually of traders, mixed in, and that they were more ready to become, quote unquote, American than John Ross's people were willing to do because they wanted to cling to the old ways and stay the way they were. However, the conflict came because the United States was just simply too powerful and the numbers were too great. It was just too difficult for the Cherokee people to hang on in the Cherokee Nation. You mentioned the phrase melting pot, and it brought me a little bit to what my next question was about, and that's how the Cherokee Nation, their people, their culture, really melted away as the melting pot, as there's just waves and waves of immigrants coming from the rest of the world. Since their nation was all but erased from the collective memory, how did their tale catch your eye? How did this family feud then become something you wanted to dig into and become Blood Moon? That's a great question. And I think what I was drawn to was the drama of it, this enduring conflict that was represented by these two extraordinary men and the factions that they came to lead and then the principles that those factions really clung to. I thought that this made for a drama that was not just dramatic in the sense of violent, which it was, and um, deeply held, which it was, but representative uh, of the larger issues that were in play. So that you get really a clash of, of two men, but you also get a clash of two ideas. The ideas were the things that I really was drawn to again and again. You know, But I have to say that, that one of the things for a writer that was so exciting for me about this project was that, you know, you're always told as a writer to show and not tell to the extent possible, that you want to reveal action through stories and rather than through a kind of voiceover narrative. Well, the Cherokee, of course, didn't have a written language until 1821. And so they were a group of people who could be known only through their actions. They, their words simply had not been recorded. You know, let's face it, they're a warrior culture and that their antagonisms are made extremely explicit through warfare and violence. And frankly, the tomahawks come out. And there are these extraordinary scenes of bloodshed and just deep, deep emotional engagement that you just never get in other kinds of stories. I mean, before this, I, I wrote about Hamilton and Burr. And of course, the great climax of that story is when they turn against each other at Weehawken and fight the, the fatal duel and, and Hamilton goes down to a bullet. Well, that kind of fight is vivid all throughout this book. And it just makes it so gripping and tense and, you know, frightening, amazing. It just completely caught me up as a, you know, a career suburbanite who now happens to be living in, in Brooklyn where we don't, as a rule, tomahawk each other. <laughs> yeah, it's a different world where the most you might do is if someone parks poorly, leaves something on it, or even people will key your car occasionally, right? There's grades. You talk about that here. In Blood Moon, you say where it was really tough because they can't speak each other's language, 
but they have this shared cultural outlook. Right. I wondered as I read the book if it had been possible to get them to talk one-on-one later in their lives after this rupture in their working together. Do you think that with the broader perspective you have as a historian that there was possibly any common ground they might have found to persuade each other? Or did that that language, that common, not literal language, but did that just feel that those concepts just not exist? Or was there just no way that possibly the horrors of removal could have been made a little bit easier for them? Well, that's a great question. I've thought about that a lot. You know, I think that at bottom, the the failure of the Cherokee to deal better with the rising American nation and to do better resolving their own internal differences over the issue of forced migration, I think that essentially that was a failure of politics. You know, politics is so much in low esteem in the culture presently. You know, politics is assumed to be and largely is dysfunctional. But politics is the means by which differences can be resolved. And unfortunately, the Cherokee had a government but no history of politics. And the Cherokee people went from being uh, um, from pre-government to government, which is to say that they were tribal with very few mechanisms by which the tribal matters could be administered. Classically, tribes governed by consensus that people would gather in the tribal meeting house and everyone would be present, men and women, although women sort of chose the leaders, but the men actually were the leaders. But the women certainly had a role here too. But the point was that in governing by consensus, they also had a principle by which everyone could be heard. No matter how long it took, everyone who had something to say could say it. It was like one of these New England meetings that goes on today that's interminable. But at the time, this is how they worked out how to proceed. Well, of course, when you're going by consensus, there aren't too many decisions that really major decisions really can be addressed if there are fundamental conflicts. They don't have a principle of compromise. If compromise is required, no action is taken. So that when this massive question of the removal came up and that they had this new system of government, which was taken directly from the American example, that they had a chief executive, namely this John Ross, who was the principal chief. He was democratically elected. They had a legislature that was drawn pretty much the way the House of Representatives in Congress is drawn. And they had a Supreme Court. So they had a three-part government, just like the American nation did. But within that, that they didn't have a system of working out differences. The whole horse trading of politics wasn't possible. And it was most obviously impossible because the two leaders literally did not could not speak to each other. They had actually created that government together. They had sort of backslapping harmony for many years, sitting on the back porch of one house or the other, discussing uh, um, how to bring this new government into being. But once they did, and once this major issue came up, that they turned on each other with outrage that the other could take the position that he did. And that once Ross discovered that the Ridge was inclined to go along with removal, he did exactly the opposite of what he should have done. What he should have done was to bring him into the government where he already was, but bring him in closer to have more conversations and more discussions to figure out how they could do this together. What did he do instead? He accused the Ridge of treason which would have been a hanging offense, and banished him from the government. He no longer had a voice. And on top of that, Ross suspended elections for two more voting cycles so that he did not submit his candidacy to the approval of the people. And so that politics, therefore, was stymied. And it went from a representative government to a dictatorship of John Ross, which did two things. One was it antagonized the opposition, but the other was that he could not be sure that he was speaking for the people because he didn't submit himself to the democratic process. Um, And he ended up taking an extreme position that was not, in fact, reflective of the full constituency. But that's what happens when 
when politics breaks down, that you get a dictatorship. Even within what's theoretically a constitutional government, what you got was one-man rule. You write in Blood Moon how there's this concept of blood vengeance, for instance. It comes up repeatedly. But to me, that helped illustrate this theme throughout Blood Moon about how the Cherokee Nation is very all or nothing. For instance, in War and Peace, if you fight, you're going to fight to the death, which doesn't really give you a chance to fight again another day or to retreat or to give up. And when the old ways of the medicine men cease to help cure these diseases that are introduced by the Europeans, they don't just say, well, maybe that's not so good. Maybe we should try something else. They throw away all their old beliefs, which has a crippling effect on them. It's really a a terrible way for them to to deal with this. It's the exact opposite, unfortunately, but that's what their society was. And it worked for them very well before they get this literally alien force introduced into their world. What do you hope readers absorb about the broader Cherokee experience, especially since today, maybe we only hear about them in the old 70s folk songs, let's say, or when somebody mentions them, or we see it on the side of a car. People forget them so easily, or people have such misconceptions. They're just strangers to them, these people who once lived in most of the Southeast. What do you hope that readers will get about that part of their lives, about their governing structure and their society? Well, it's a tragedy, let's face it. Anytime that a people is forcibly removed from their ancestral lands and sent 800 miles west to an entirely new territory to them, which was itself contested, to start lives anew without much money and without other resources, that is a misery for them and is appropriately called the Trail of Tears. That forced migration west over 800 miles was truly a Trail of Tears. And that is primarily what is remembered about the Cherokee today. But I think that it misses the real story, which is that within that, there were two groups uh, represented by the Ridge on one side were basically accommodationists, that they felt that America was going to be here to stay and that we had to make make terms with it. They had to get with modern ways. They needed to educate themselves. They needed to understand capitalist ways. They needed to shift from being hunters to being uh, farmers and get with the new. On the other hand, John Ross was representing the people, the traditionalists, the full-bloods, who wanted to stay the way they were. And who wouldn't? But the fact is that that really was not an option given the scale of the opposition. But what you see with the Cherokee, and I think what is um, so sort of moving about their story, was their effort to understand who they really were and what of what they were, they wanted to retain. And I think that the Ridge saw something different in the Cherokee from what Ross saw. The Ridge saw the Cherokee as an adaptable people, a a dynamic people, a a people that was capable of moving with events, that was accommodating to new forces and new factors, that was capable of education. Not for nothing was where the Cherokee called the most civilized tribe in the uh, in the United States and civilized you know it has to be put in quotes nowadays because it, it's a term that sort of requires some pretty clear definition but if you take civilized to mean self-improving adaptable and dynamic that absolutely was true and I think everybody could get behind it on the other hand you feel for a people that wants to stay the way they were and to live the lives of their forefathers on the land of their forefathers who wouldn't want to and i but you know let's face it that is the american experience i mean right now for example this country is awash in technological change in social change in political change that is going at breathtaking speed well, we have these, a choice of getting with this novelty and surfing the new and staying with it or trying to hunker down and stick with the old ways. And of course, the answer is to cobble together for yourself an amalgam of both. And that is what the Cherokee ultimately, I think, did do with the, the group that was more accommodationist. But one of the difficulties of their choice was it seemed binary. It seemed to be that 
that there were only two choices. They would stay or go and that there wasn't a middle course where they could sort of stay and sort of go. They really had to choose. And it was a real tragedy, doubly so from within the nation, to me, reading Blood Moon, because they impose that on themselves. For instance, with John Ross and Major Ridge, right. they are friends until you do something that I don't like, and then that's it. Now we're enemies. Now we're blood enemies. So this is requiring them to just all all or nothing, not only against each other, but against their families. So there was no minute to say, hey, my, my friend or my political ally did something wrong. They voted against me, say, on this bill, as we would expect to happen in our Senate, maybe. But we're still friends. We're still going to try to maybe work together in areas we can find common ground. They don't have that tradition. And that leads to this real devastation, bringing us back to the book jacket. When I read the quote on your book, which I'll read here, you write, while little remembered today, their mutual hatred shaped the tragic history of the tribe far more than anyone even the reviled Andrew Jackson ever did. Right. What will readers learn in Blood Moon to flesh out that comparison, especially if they think, as I did, that that's a real challenge to the accepted view? People may think that that's somehow downplaying Jackson, although I know having read the book, which I hope people will if they're taken aback by the comparison, what do you hope your readers will get out of this, especially the ones that might think that's downplaying Jackson's bloody legacy? Well, you know, history, in fact, all of life is a matter of perspective, that you see what you see depending on where you're looking from. And in the case of Jackson and the traditional view of the Cherokee, I think that it's actually a kind of patronizing view towards the Cherokee where you see it only from the Washington perspective. You see it only in the context of the greater America. And you see the Cherokee as they are seen by Andrew Jackson. I mean, that's been kind of a theme of American historiography. You know, if you read Teddy Roosevelt, the um, that you'll see that you know the white settlers are always heroically purging the land of the vermin that are these savages that are off in the forest is a completely one-sided view of what was actually going on and of course to a more enlightened perspective that the white settlers were just as savage as any indians ever were and so that you need some perspective in that regard but the point is what i have done was not to see the cherokee as the Americans saw them. I was trying to see the Cherokee as the Cherokee themselves saw them. This is their story, not the American story. To my way of thinking, their story explains far more about the Cherokee experience than the American perspective on it ever will. Yes, Jackson was a powerful force, but so was John Ross, and even greater was Major Ridge. And the families that we haven't gotten into, the, the aspirations of these people were what dictated the result far more than what happened from the outside. I mean, what Jackson was just representing a, a force that was inevitably going to impinge on the Cherokee people, that there was a bigger world out there that was going to impact them and that there was no maintaining the Cherokee way of life as it had always been. But the real answer, what happened, was far more the result of what the Cherokee did than it was the result of what the Americans did. Sure, the Americans put a great deal of pressure on them, but the Cherokee had a choice about how to respond and that the way, they, the way it came down was really the result of Cherokee actions as much as it was American ones. You're enjoying my chat with John Sedgwick, author of Blood Moon, an American epic of war and splendor in the Cherokee Nation. You can visit him online at johnsedgwick.biz. Rinker Buck, who we interviewed twice about his book, The Oregon Trail, writes of Blood Moon, quote, the most important history to know is the history that has been deliberately hidden from us. John Sedgwick's absorbing and ultimately damning story of the destruction of the Cherokee Nation so that white settlers could pour in and take over their rich lands finally unearths the ugly but quintessentially American truth about our young nation's path to expansionism. 
John, something unique about Blood Moon is you don't stop at that damning story, as you were just mentioning, but you show us people who act with virtue and sinister intent, and their lineage doesn't matter. We all know there's evil everywhere, there's good everywhere, there's amazing sacrifice everywhere and love. One Cherokee who sells out the nation and really jumps out of the pages here, Blood Moon, you almost want to hold the book a a little bit away so you don't get them too close to you. I found myself looking up more on that newfangled internet you mentioned about him. That's the man named Doublehead. Oh, Doublehead. (laughs) Who was he? What a character. How does his bloody rise and violent fall help readers understand this wider picture of discord within the Cherokee nation? Well, Doublehead was a figure who rose and fell around uh, 1800 in the aftermath of the American defeat of the British, that the Americans tried to secure a number of treaties that were extremely unfavorable to the Cherokee. One of the great Cherokee chiefs was a man named Dragging Canoe. You've got to love these names. (laughs) So-called because he, as a small boy, was capable of dragging a canoe enormous distance distance down across a sandy beach. And so dragging canoe, he became. Well, he had a descendant named Doublehead. Doublehead is one of the great characters because while dragging canoe was sort of fighting for his people, doing his best to shove the settlers off their lands and turning back this tide of migration of whites into Cherokee land, Doublehead did this on much more of a private basis. Doublehead was an extremely magnetic, impressive, sort of wrathful character who was utterly intimidating and stooped to just amazing lows. I mean, one of the great moments is when he's out in the woods with my man, the Ridge, and notices that a white settler who is a traitor has come by and the doublehead makes a point of attacking this man and quickly surround him and shoot him up with bullets. There are two of them and then drag him back to the fire where he insists on cupping out the brains of this man and the intestines and then cooking them over an open fire in order to ingest them, saying that this was the Iroquois way of taking the kind of fruits of their enemies into their bodies and then excreting them. That's not the word he used. And the Ridge is watching this and he is absolutely appalled. Well, it's these kinds of just sort of staggering moves that a man like Doublehead would do. They was utterly intimidating. He, he did every that he wanted to do. He just didn't allow anyone to hold him back. And of course, before long, he starts accumulating quite an empire in Tennessee of, of land all of his own, which he's not supposed to have in a land where you are not supposed to have any private possession of it. All the land is supposed to be owned collectively by the people. Well, Doublehead didn't go along with that at all. And so he rose in power to the point where he was a threat to the Cherokee nation. And the the Ridge was called upon by a friend of his named David Vam to do something about it. The Doublehead needed to be stopped. And that he figured that the Ridge, who had been a warrior in the Battle of 1812 was the man to do it. And one night he decides that he scoped it out and seen the doublehead went usually most evenings to a tavern to have a couple of glasses of whiskey and then uh, to go on home. And so they, he and a, and a friend of his named Saunders decided to wait for him there. And sure enough, doublehead appears, but not before he had gone to a ball game where a drunken Indian came up to him and is appalled by it doublehead's behavior and whacks a tomahawk down on his thumb as he's sitting on his horse and practically severs his thumb. Doublehead quickly dispatches that Indian with one bullet to the head and then he continues on into town where he has his usual drink as though nothing nothing has happened. Well, he's hunched over the table and there the Ridge and Saunders see him and the Ridge goes up to him, leans over, blows out the candle, brings his gun down to a doublehead's head and pulls the trigger. And, and the blood goes everywhere. The sound booms throughout the tavern. And the Ridge and this man Saunders then dash off into the night, waiting to see how people are going to take that. Are they going to rise up to the defense of doublehead? Or are they going to be glad that he's gone? 
Will they wait? And then um, they discovered the astonishing fact that Doublehead has somehow survived. So they come, the two of them come back to try and find this guy, and he's no longer in the tavern. They are still on horseback. They wander around the town trying to find him. And then they double back to the tavern, and they see that there's a trail of blood leading from the back of the tavern and then going up the stairs into a little apartment on the second floor. And they, the two of them, the Ridge and Saunders, then realized that that must be the bloody trail of Doublehead himself. And what had happened, in fact, was that Doublehead had, had indeed, of course, survived the shot. The bullet had gone through his open mouth, um, hitting one cheek and then the other cheek, leaving a stream of blood coming down his face, but leaving him very much alive, which is why he was in a position to go up the stairs. And they, so they go up the stairs after him. And they look in the window and they see that he is there, uh, but then they're trying to decide what to do. And so the Ridge decides that he is going to go in with Saunders. They're going to creep in and they're just simply going to kill him in cold blood. And so both of them cock their guns and they pull open the door quietly. They lean in. Sure enough, there is Doublehead in a chair at the far end of the room. And they spring on him and they fire. And, of course, they miss. Doublehead springs up, even though he's bloody from head to foot, and wraps his arms around the ridge and starts trying to squeeze him to death. The Saunders somehow is able to break free, and his one bullet left in his gun, and he fires it and catches Doublehead on the hip. Doublehead rears back and then is about to bring his hands down on Saunders when Saunders pulls back this tomahawk that he's carrying and whacks it down on Doublehead's forehead and drives it so far into his skull that he that when Doublehead tumbles down, the two of them together can hardly pull the tomahawk back out of his head. And so there he is, blood pouring down everywhere. And this time, of course, Doublehead is dead. Well, now what? Is Doublehead actually going to be someone who is supported by the people who he had ruled over, or are they going to turn against him? And what are they going to do to the rich? Because at that time, there was still this principle in many parts of the land, a, a blood law, that if you kill somebody, you are to be killed regardless of the circumstances. Well, the Ridge had himself argued against blood law. I thought that that was just going to lead to a series of retributive justice where one person gets another person killed, which gets another person killed and so forth. So what was going to happen? So they go out the door. The people start coming into the room, see Doublehead is there, and they're milling around very quietly. And it becomes quite clear that they are all really happy that this man is gone. And they turn to the ridge and ask him to speak. He comes outside the door onto the landing, and there's a horde of people there at his feet. And he explains that he's killed this man, not for any personal reasons, but for the good of the nation. And that they look up at him, and they listen to him, and that they decide that they're going to follow that man wherever he might lead. That's a story that sticks with you so much that you can see that one being told and retold and you have so many vivid details in it. But since the Cherokee did lack what they called talking leaves or that written language that you spoke about in the beginning, we're fortunate that there's a man or was a man named James Mooney who you cite in Blood Moon that set out to record their living memories before they were lost. He published many of those into records, but I was intrigued, and who wouldn't be, when you say he left behind pages of illegible notes at his <laughs> death that we could never know what they say. And I yeah. wondered if you could go back and speak to Swimmer, the Cherokee who gave Mooney so much information, or any of the Cherokee, if you could speak to the Ridge, if you could speak to Ross, what shadowed area of their culture would you ask them to describe? What nags at you that you wish you could fill in that blank that's unfortunately lost forever? Well, you know, the part of the Cherokee that always moves me that when I think of it is that this is a society that was in perfect balance and order until the white men got there. It was a timeless 
society, that every generation lived exactly as the previous generation had since time out of mind. And it operated on a beautiful system of balance and order, that the sun was balanced against the moon, war was balanced against peace, summer was balanced against winter, men were balanced against women. And this was the basis of a kind of a sense of eternal harmony. And that for the Cherokee, whenever that harmony was questioned, it was frankly terrifying to them. And there were times of a lunar eclipse when in the dead of night, the moon suddenly disappeared. And it spooked the Cherokee like you wouldn't believe. There's an account by this um, uh, an early trader named James Adair of when this happened. And he'd never seen such squawking pandemonium on the part of the Cherokee. They just all went berserk. They were firing off guns. They were wailing and weeping. They just could not accept the idea that their world had gone out of balance and harmony. And they actually came up with a myth to explain it, that, they, that the moon had been eaten by a giant giant bullfrog and happily the giant bullfrog ultimately restored the moon and that and that harmony came back to the Cherokee. But you know, it's that part that's what I think Mooney was able to capture, that sense of the timeless aspects of the Cherokee. And I think that sort of the deepest tragedy of all is just simply the human tragedy, that things don't last. That the Cherokee had been the way they always were and then it changed. And then the Americans came, they came in number, they came with guns, they came with their viruses, came with their ideas about Christianity and modernity and capitalism, and everything was transformed. And the Cherokee could not stay the way they had always been. You know, that's just the great tragedy of life that ultimately things change and you want them to stay the same. I think this is a sort of primal yearning of everyone to, you know, always have their mother and father, to always have the house of their youth, to always have sort of silly terms, the dog of their childhood. Whatever it is, you want to, there is this part of us that wants to hang on to what we had and to keep it forever. But of course, the fact is that life moves on and that things do change and ultimately have to accommodate to it. And that's that was the issue that the Cherokee faced. And the, the story of this book is, is the way they faced it. And with so many contradictions and paradoxes that the people coming from Europe were comfortable with. For instance, as I'm reading Blood Moon, I could see some of these people thinking, well, just move. We just traveled all the way across the ocean. Why don't you go to this better place? And maybe they were partially fooling themselves to think that the Oklahoma land would be so great. But paradoxically, they have this idea of land ownership. And we say, well, the Cherokee don't have that. Yet they do in the sense that it belongs to everybody. It's a different way of owning it. You don't have a deed with just your name on it or your you and your wife's name on it. You have everybody owns it. And this is where you've lived for thousands of years. This is where your ancestors are buried. It's important. And there are all these paradoxes and they don't have a way to really deal with it, to accept even a little bit of influence makes you a traitor sometimes, right? They can't really exactly so. have that balance. Yeah. As much as you just said balance, right? Yes. <laughs> it's tough. Exactly. I think of all the things that the white settlers brought, and it runs from strong liquor through viruses to Christianity. But I would say that the thing that was most transformative and most destructive, ultimately, was capitalism. With capitalism came class distinctions. Cherokee were always a people that there were no such distinctions. There was maybe a tribal chief, but everybody was equal within the tribe. And there was also, that there was no rank. And that it was really sort of the, the communist ideal of, of, you know, you give according to your abilities and receive according to your needs. And that people who were unable to feed themselves were fed and by the tribe as a whole. Once capitalism came in, everything changed that there were, that introduced this notion of greed. And it's, it's kind of a fascinating thing because greed really did not exist before that. Nobody wanted anything more than they needed. Nobody put on a show. Nobody, um, there was no such thing as status. There was no idea that somebody's house might want to be any larger than anybody else's or that they'd have any more possessions than anybody else. Once capitalism came in, then all of those emotions were unleashed. 
And there was this new thing called greed, and with greed came status. With status came class distinctions, and with class distinctions, you get the underpinnings of this terrible rivalry between John Ross and the rich, because the rich actually, good a man as I believe him to be, was very much a backer of the new capitalist system, that he was quite acquisitive, and that one of the things that, of course, he ended up buying were slaves. And you bought slaves not just to do the work for you, you bought them as kind of like class ornaments, that these were points of pride. If you had slaves, you were a rich man, and people could see that you were, and you put the, the slaves up in the front of the carriage to drive it so everybody could see that you had one. And you might even have a, a, a sort of cultivated slave would be playing the violin at, at dinner. That kind of thing. That that was a completely and radically different way of being Cherokee and that it never would have occurred to them if the English hadn't brought it. And you know, there's a, there's a funny story about the first meeting of the Cherokee and, and the first English settlers where the, a couple of the traders named, I think, Graham and Needham were dealing in, in guns and, and buying land. And, and suddenly one of the, the tribal chiefs took exception to what they were doing. They'd never seen white men, so they put them up on basically a scaffolding to show off their white skin. And then they uh, um, w- one of the chiefs took exception to the way that he had been treated by one of these white traders. And the trader had some words back. And the next thing he knew, that uh, you know a gun had gone off. And the and that one of the, the chiefs had been shot, and then he shot Needham back, and then he reached in and pulled his heart out and held it up to the sky, and then they, then they were ready to throw the other man onto a bonfire and burn him to a crisp, but he was stopped at the last minute. And, and the thing that's fascinating about this is that even the, the guy who was going to be burned to a crisp, that once he was freed, he didn't go running back to the white community, as you would expect, but he stayed with, he actually slathered some red sand onto his skin to pass as a Cherokee warrior himself and to stay with the tribe. And this is a curiosity that was repeated time and again, that whites who were captured by the Cherokee did not in many cases, want to return to white, quote-unquote, civilization. Cherokees who were captured by the whites wanted to get out of there as fast as they could. And I think that says something about, you know, the pre-capitalist, the non-capitalist way of living, which the Cherokees still represented and which was still desirable, even though the system of capitalism obviously, you know, swept across any society where he was unleashed. It's the idea of the individual, as you're describing it there. It's not just a a capitalist system, but it's the idea of coming to people who the reason they want to get back is because they have no identity, really. It's not part of their culture, I guess you'd say, from reading Blood Moon, where they would just go off on their own and, hey, I'm going to go take a trip or I'm going to go off to college and become an adult or whatever the people did at the time, the people that were coming from Europe, they really identify completely with that, their piece of that of that group, of their tribe, and that's it. And there isn't that way of, I could see wanting to go, like I was just mentioning there about Mooney going there and wanting to learn some of these stories and hear their stories and maybe hear some of their ways, maybe learn something about them. For instance, in the American occupation of Japan after the war, I remember way back, probably in the early 90s, reading an article about how the school children, so many of them had been fed with sporks of all things to adopt from another culture. They just started to use the spork. And so they were lamenting that the use of chopsticks, the skill with them had really fallen off among young people because they'd adopted something that was just a better utensil that worked for them. Hey, why don't I use that? And there's a lot of that, especially now in the world, you see where you'll adopt a new form of music or somebody's story or something like that. And that was a little bit similar in that we were were occupying Japan at the time. So you might pick up some small thing, but it strikes me that in the views of the Cherokee, they looked at a lot of those things as well. That just makes you a sellout. They didn't have those grades. And that's really that central tragedy here of Blood Moon is that these two men who you find reasons to, to admire them both standing up for what they believe, they can't find that common ground. You really want them to, as there's this endless string of broken promises, broken treaties. You mentioned before that John Ross and Major Ridge were individually 
obviously very strong. Their families were strong, just as Jackson was strong. And as you were saying it, I thought, imagine how much stronger that they would have been together instead of being at odds with each other against interlopers. I jotted down here something you wrote of all the interlopers. The Georgians were the worst, Uh, for instance. They had that bad luck. Tell me briefly, why the Georgians, that dubious distinction? Well, the Georgians were an unusual state because they, you know, just as Australians, Australia was, you know, founded by felons, that Georgia was um, founded by debtors, uh, that they, it was actually a creation of James Oglethorpe in London. It was run by a kind of um, board of trustees set in London, but it had this residue of thievery that was definitely part of the Georgian character, at least at that time. And the Georgians, unlike the other states, well, I guess the key factor for the Georgians was that in Georgia, on Cherokee land, gold was discovered. Now, to the Cherokee, gold was nothing special. Sure, it was pretty, but so was the sunset, so was a wildflower. They, they didn't treasure it. They certainly um, weren't going to dig for it, pan for it, look for it, any of, anything like that. The Georgians, of course, were basically driven mad at the prospect of getting some gold. And so that once um, the, the gold was discovered, there was just pandemonium in the land and that any notion that this might have been Cherokee land immediately went out the window because people were so crazed to get the gold. And so that that led sadly and inexorably to they wanted the gold, then they wanted the land that the gold was on, and then they wanted all the gold, uh, all the land that the gold was on. And then they devised this unbelievably cruel system of a lottery to apportion the land of the Cherokee and divide it up and give it to what were termed lucky drawers in the Georgia land lottery. And basically the way it worked was that every piece of property in Cherokee Nation that within the borders of Georgia was assigned a piece of paper that designated which tract of land it was. All those chits were thrown into a big uh, drum, and then all the people who were hoping to get that land, all their names were put into another drum, and this was the great lottery. They rotated the drum, they'd pull out one property, and then they'd pull out a name, and then that Georgian suddenly had the right to that piece of land, even though the Cherokee had been living there for hundreds and hundreds of years and had houses and children and that's where their ancestors were buried and all the rest of it. Well, that wasn't enough for the Georgians. They just came right in and at gunpoint, they'd wave this ticket saying that it was their land now and and then the Cherokee were thrown off the property. Cherokee laws had no effect in Georgia and and worse still, the Cherokee were not able to testify in a trial, even if the trial was of them. So they had absolutely no rights and they were completely dispossessed just by this massive greedy impulse of these of these Georgians and and it was the Georgians more than as much as Jackson who provided the impetus for removing the Cherokee from Cherokee land and it was to resist the Georgians that the famous court case involving Samuel Worcester a, a, a missionary uh, um, came to be because the Georgia governor a man named Gilmer thought that um, Worcester, the missionary, was trying to help the Cherokee fight off the Georgian advance. And so had him thrown in jail for defying the the Georgian government. The question was, and this went to the Supreme Court, which was, is this Cherokee nation truly a sovereign nation or is this Cherokee nation something else? And that's a deep question that, you know, this was land that had always been the Cherokees and the Cherokees had, when they had sold it, they had sold it by treaty and not by just a standard land contract. 
you conduct a treaty with a foreign nation. You don't conduct a, a treaty with a fellow citizen within a common nation. So that implied that these were two sovereign nations, the United States and the Cherokee Nation, that were mutually respectful of each other's territory and that they were obliged to stay out, which meant that the Georgians had no business coming into the Cherokee Nation and, and rousting these Cherokee out of their homes. Well, so the, the question was put to um, Chief Justice John Marshall in the first round of this of this big court case, and John Marshall came out with a, quite an equivocal um, decision, saying that it was the, the Cherokee Nation was not an independent nation; it was a nation in pupillage, as he said. It was kind of a ward state. It was possibly on its way to becoming a nation, but it wasn't one. Well, to the Georgians, uh, they thought, well, that gave them carte blanche to continue to pull out the Cherokee. And they continued to do so until there was another court case uh, um, because the Cherokee, uh, there was a guy who was up for on a murder charge. And the question was whether the Georgia law applied to the, the, an act of murder that had occurred you know, on land of the Cherokee nation. That court case was decided the other way. John Marshall said that no, actually, that the, the Cherokee land is the land of the Cherokee. It is a sovereign nation, and that Georgia needs to butt out. That decision was passed along, obviously, to the President of the United States to enforce, as he was obliged by the Constitution to enforce all Supreme Court rulings regarding the Constitution. And, and Jackson said, famously, that's John Marshall's decision. Let him enforce it. And this was a terrible breach of constitutional authority. But as happens that when presidents are sufficiently powerful, that they can disregard all sorts of principles and traditions and that they and so that he let Georgia keep on and in fact he himself moved forward with this Indian Removal Act and then negotiated with a portion of the of the Cherokee people led by my man the Ridge um, for a treaty that would sell all of the eastern lands of the Cherokee to the federal government for five million dollars in exchange for the Cherokee agreeing to remove. Well, an incredibly complicated story because this was an agreement that Jackson reached with literally 20 Cherokee in a in a country of 20,000 Cherokee. And this was the Cherokee of the Ridge Party. And this is a divisive issue in the Cherokee Nation to this day as to whether this was a fraudulent treaty or whether it was a legitimate one. And frankly, it's an open question. I, I think that legally speaking, that no private committee can ever speak for a, a government in the, you know, uh, um, just on their own. But the fact was that something had to give because the Cherokee were not going to be able to stay on their property without um, bringing down an army on them. So this Treaty of New Chota, as it was called, uh, um, that the Ridge Party signed was declared by, it was passed by, ratified by the Senate in Washington, and then troops were deployed to remove any Cherokee who refused to go from their houses and forced march uh, basically out west to Oklahoma. It's, it's an incredible incredibly bitter, tragic, awful ending. And it frankly, it shows the the ambiguity of history where good people, I think that the Ridge was a good person, but I think in this case, he did a bad thing that was probably a necessary thing, but it was still a bad thing because it led to untold hardship. But it's more complicated than that because Ross didn't intercede to offer anything better and the, the Ridge felt that he had no choice. Well, complicated makes for an excellent book, an excellent story. I don't want the word in your subhead there, an American epic of war and splendor. I don't want the word splendor to get lost. I want people to know that this really is an enjoyable story. It's not that story, which is unfortunately part of the story of the Cherokee, these broken treaties and the Trail of Tears. But it's so much more than that. You really get to know these people. I wanted to ask one final question, and that is when readers finish Blood Moon and reflect on it, I'm thinking particularly of people who live on what was their land for all those years. What do you hope they'll take with them about the Cherokee or do to honor them and remember them as more than just these people who were put on this tragic march? Yes, I think that's right. I would hope 
I, I find this to be a moving story as an engaging story. I would hope that people would move away from the idea that the Cherokee were any kind of victims. I think that victimology of this type is, does no one any credit. The, the, these were stirring, bold, vital, engaged, intelligent people who strove daily to improve their lot for themselves and for their people, that they were vibrant and also, to my eye, that they had something that Americans lack, which is this contact with nature that was intimate and deep and that they had a feeling for the land that I think all Americans wish they had. Of course, it was tragic that they were removed from their land, but that they did indeed regroup and reestablish themselves ultimately in Oklahoma, where where they, where they now remain. It's a tale of struggle, not a victory, let's be honest, but a tale of struggle. And the struggle is, is impressive. The struggle is astounding. And it, it moves me to see what people make of bitter circumstances, the way that they reveal their true character, the way they try to make things better for themselves. And Everyone in this story is engaged in that act. No one is just taking this lying down by any means. And the, what is so great about the Cherokee people, I would say, is their vigor, their expressiveness, their ferocity, their power, the, the force of their personality, their willingness to engage. And they're just an energetic, dynamic, creative people who did their best with a bad hand. Well, John Sedgwick, author of Blood Moon, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me today and shed light on the internal struggles that eroded the Cherokee Nation's strength from within, even as European Americans devoured it from without. I hope listeners will enjoy the book as much as I did, that they'll read it for the parts that are really inspiring and sweeping epic. Splendor is again the word on the cover, and it does not disappoint on that score. And I appreciate you introducing me to John Ross and your man, Major Ridge. Hey, thank you so much, Dean. It was really nice talking to you. Again, the book is Blood Moon, an American epic of war and splendor in the Cherokee Nation. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, that banner takes you through to Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra clicks, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. Thanks to John Sedgwick for joining us and for sharing this sweeping tale of the Cherokee Nation's disintegration in the face of enemies, foreign and domestic. Don't forget to visit him at johnsedrick.biz. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean or Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. And if you want to follow our show's Instagram account, I have a couple of shots of the book up there. I like to take the books out in the field and let you know where I'm reading them. Well, that's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us in 14 days for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. The boys won the war and came home from the fight. The last night on Broadway was almost his night. But ever since then, it's a different street. Gone are the places where the gang used to be. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east 
sign west sign things ain't like before there are tears in the eyes of the regular guys oh new york ain't new york anymore 